passages are best understood in context together. And while we read them, it may not seem like they're talking exactly about the same thing. I think they, in fact, are. And if, you, if we bring out that theme, then, then understanding them together uh, just builds on the richness of what we're talking about. So let's go ahead and get started, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. This is a long passage. Um, I hope everyone's still awake by the end of it. But um, let's begin. Now concerning food offered to idols, that, in case is, you didn't know, is the topic of this entire passage. So um, try and just see how everything fits into that. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods and heaven are on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. For food, uh, sorry. However, let me start, just start over. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding his conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now he continues this thought from another angle in chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law, law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that the God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of the sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if you reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple serve, get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing to secure these any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? 
that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. I love this part coming up. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And this is the part where it connects back to eight. To the weak, I became weak. Think those with weak conscience. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank... From the, spiritual, from the rock that flowed from them, and the rock was Christ. Anybody remember this passage from this morning? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test of some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are they not those who eat the sacrifice, participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot take the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then finally, he brings all these thoughts together to say, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered to sa in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. 
I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. After that much scripture, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity tonight to share the truth of your word, Father, the, the truth in this passage, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through this, this message, Father, through the word that you have spoken. That what people hear tonight would not be any of my words or my thoughts or my impressions, Father, but they would be from you. That they would hear the truth of the gospel. And if I say anything that is separate from that, the, their ears would be closed and they would not hear it, Father. But that if I speak your truth, Father, if I convey that which you want us to hear, that they would be stricken, Father, and that their lives would be changed because of it. Not because of my words, Father, but because of the truth that you share, Father. Because of what you have done for us on the cross. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Like the Corinthians in this passage, we are no stranger to controversial issues. Let me give you a few examples here and see if you think some of these might uh, raise a few eyebrows. Okay, so say you go to, to lunch after church, and you see Pastor Keith there, and he's wearing a shirt that says Coors Light across the front. Or in another conversation, you hear Pastor Peter talking about how much he loves the hamburgers that he gets at Hooters. <laughs> or maybe you hear Matt talking about how he cannot wait to see the next Harry Potter movie that just came out. These are controversial issues in the church. I don't have to explain to you why those might be an issue. Those are things that we've dealt with and that we see and know the issues and the concepts that are surrounding them. As we enter this passage, Paul is doing exactly the same thing. All he has to do is say, now as to food offered to idols, and everyone knows what he is talking about. This is a big deal for the Corinthians. It basically speaks to them of the difference between their old life and their new life in Christ. You see, in, in Corinth, the temple dominate the city life. Everyone around would come to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Part of this sacrifice would be given to the pagan god there, burned as an offering. Part of it would be eaten by the worshiper. And so basically they were sharing a meal. They were communing there with that God. Now the issue for the Christians was that most people can't eat a whole goat in one sitting. There's just too much. So the extra meat would often be taken to the marketplace and sold just to make some money. Now there was no kosher label. There was no label that said this meat was idol meat. So if you went to the, the marketplace, there was always a risk that you were buying meat that had been offered to an idol. So the question for the Christians in Corinth was, is it okay to buy meat and eat it from the marketplace knowing it might have been sacrificed to an idol? Some Christians said, no, we can't do that. We cannot be communing with these other gods. We can have nothing to do with that. That is our old way of life. We must put that off. But other Christians, they took out their Bibles and they said, that's, that's not really right because we know these idols, they're not anything. This is the... the argument you see in verses 4 through 6, these idols are nothing, so the meat that was offered to them, nothing happened to it. It's just meat. We're not communing with anything if we eat that, so there's no real reason to worry about it. So Paul is entering this argument, and, and everyone is waiting to hear what he'd have to say. It's sort of like if Pastor Keith walked up here and said, now, concerning whether or not you should kiss your girlfriend before you're married, everyone is instantly listening. We want to hear what is Keith going to say about this issue. You know, I'm pretty sure he's going to say what I think, but um, let's just see what he says. And so Paul enters the issue, but it's interesting to see that he never actually says, do eat this or don't eat this. 
No, and, and he's not giving them just an answer to their question. He's, he's backing them up and saying, now, here's some things for you to think about. Here are some principles on how you should act. And I think that the thrust of his argument is that this is the way that you should act in love and not just in knowledge. I think he has five major principles of what does it look like in these issues to act in love. The first issue that I think, principle I think he brings to us is that, you know, so often we come to these issues looking for the right answer. But I think he would say to us that acting in love means looking beyond just the correct answer. You know, maybe we come to this passage and we want to quickly draw an answer from it to say, you know, what does it say about um, this controversial issue we might have? And we might be tempted to sort of paste our own issues into that text. So the text then becomes something like, if watching PG-13 movies causes my brother to stumble, then I'll only watch PG and G movies. Or you might go to the end and he would say, um, so whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Drink alcohol. He's talking about whether or not we can drink. As long as I can drink alcohol in a godly way to the glory of God, then Paul says it's okay. But I think that approaching the scripture that way is, is misuse of the text. First, because Paul isn't talking about that. He's not talking about drinking or what movies we watch or whether or not we can support Disney because they have gay, pro-gay slogans. He's not talking about that. He's talking about food offered to idols. I'm not saying that we can't draw principles from that. In fact, that's what I'm going to do for the next however long I'm up here. But he is saying that to simply copy and paste Paul's answer for this issue onto issues that we think of as sort of similar without understanding the principles that he's teaching here is a misuse of Scripture. I think that's the very thing Paul is trying to ask us not to do. He's trying to expand our thinking on this issue. Look at the first three verses he says. You sort of know he's backing you up here. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Basically, he's saying knowledge is not enough. Yes, knowledge is good. Yes, we should seek doctrinally sound answers to controversial issues in the church. But if the only thing that we're concerned about is the correct answer, then we're missing the point. And he takes this idea straight to the gospel. He reminds us that our salvation is not based on knowledge. If, if that was the case, we would still be condemned in the knowledge of our sin. But rather, our salvation is based on love. It's because of love that we can love God and that we can be known by Him. So, when we consider these controversial issues, we need to look beyond just the correct, the doctrinally sound issue and act in love. Paul would say that if we only have knowledge, no matter how much knowledge we have, no matter how correct that is, that we are just a clanging gong, a sounding cymbal. That knowledge is doing nothing but puffing us up in our own pride. The next principle I think we see here is that acting in love means deferring to those with a weak conscience. You get that in the second part of chapter 8. I think... What, is, what does Paul mean here by weak conscience? What is he talking about? If you look in verse 7, it says, However, not all possess this knowledge. 
But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Simply put, I think to have a weak conscience on an issue means to not have knowledge that that neutral issue is not sinful. And Paul's not just talking here about some sort of head knowledge. He's not saying these people have never been told that these idol meat is not a problem. He's not even saying that they haven't understood the argument that was presented in verse 4 through 6. No, he's saying there's a, there's a deeper sort of certainty of knowledge that's going on here. Many of you may, may have heard about Frankie's trip to Cambodia. And, and if that's the case, you may have heard about the stampede that occurred while I was there. Some event set off a stampede during their, their annual river festival, um, and 300 people were killed in a single day just by the crush of the crowd. The next day, people all over the city were setting out sacrifices to the spirits that they thought were now roaming the streets. One of her friends at that time, Moitian, was, was a young Christian. And so because of her faith in Christ, she did not put out an offering because she knew that she was safe in Christ. But she still confessed later that, that she was still frightened because her house was the only house on the street that didn't have an offering in front of it. So her cultural knowledge told her that she stood out like a bullseye for these spirits that were just walking around. So yes, in one sense, that she knew that she was safe in Christ and that she did not need to fear earthly spirits. But in another sense, in a real sense, she was still not certain about that. And so in that particular issue, her conscience was weak. These are the sort of believers that Paul is calling us to care for in this passage. People who, through their former association with sins, are not certain of the knowledge that we may have. For us, this may look like a recovering alcoholic for whom just having one or two drinks, that's just the beginning of a night of drunkenness. Perhaps a man who used to be addicted to porn and movies that he watches nowadays look very similar to the things that used to consume and enslave him. People whose sins are still so close in their memory that they have difficulty disassociating the actions surrounding that sin and the sin itself. And it's not enough to simply tell these people what is sinful, to give them a better understanding. Paul doesn't say, not all possess this knowledge, so make sure you go and inform them of it. No, because what's at stake here is their destruction. Because when a believer takes part in an action they think might be sinful, that action is a sin. Paul's talking about this exact same issue of food sacrifice to idols in Romans 14. And in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And down in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. When a believer chooses to do something they think would be sinful, they're in effect saying, that they care more about fulfilling that desire, doing that action, than they do in upholding the law of Christ. And that is rebellion against God, and that is sin. The, the tragedy for these Christians is not that they're missing out on some sort of good gift that God had. It's not that they're not using the fullness of their Christian freedom. The tragedy is that those good gifts that God intended for their good can be turned into sin by their uncertainty. We must think of our fellow believers when we are dealing with these controversial issues. 
even if we don't talk about it with them, even if we don't do it in a way that's knowing, our carelessness can cause them to partake in an action that they are uncertain of and can cause their destruction. Paul says that when we cause these weak conscience believers to stumble, when we become a stumbling block for them, that we are not just sinning against them, we are sinning against the work of Christ. We are destroying his church. This is why Paul is led to say that if eating meat causes his brother to stumble, that he will never eat meat again. Do we say the same thing? Do we take the time to find what issues might be an issue for those around us? Are we willing to love our brothers more than we love fulfilling our own desires? Do our actions reflect more love for the church of Christ or for doing the things that we desire? The third point that I think Paul would make is that acting in love means trading in our rights to gain rewards. It seems like Paul might could have stopped in chapter 8. He's, he's got a pretty solid working here. We can, we can take part in these actions that we find are unsinful as long as they don't cause our brothers to stumble. That's pretty simple, right? But I find that like that's, that answer, while it's correct and it's comprehensive, it's not completely satisfying. I think if Paul had stopped at chapter 8, that there would still be something in me that wanted more. And so Paul spends the next two chapters addressing the heart issues going on when, we're cu- cu- the, when we are addressing these controversial issues in the church. Paul spends in chapter 9, the first 14 verses, he's explaining and defending the rights that he has. And he's not saying that these are not good things. He says, I have the right to eat and drink, the right to take along a believing wife, the right to refrain from working for a living, to get paid for the ministry that he's doing. And he's not saying that, you know, he shouldn't have these things or that his life is now somehow better because he's given them up. No. He's not saying that, that Matt shouldn't get paid for the work that he does. He's not saying that Matt shouldn't have gotten married. Had three awesome kids who, with musical abilities that I will never measure up to at 12. You know, his entire argument rests on the fact that he has these. And he belabors the point. He uses logical arguments. A soldier gets paid for his work. A farmer expects to share in the crop. He uses the law, the oxen that gets to eat while it's treading out grain. He says, that's not talking about the oxen, that's talking about us. We should be getting paid for the work that we're doing. But he's given these rights up. And it's because he had those rights that it meant anything that he gave them up. He gave them up for the gospel. He says this in... in Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He's, he's not just giving him up for no reason. He has a specific purpose in mind. You see, Paul knew that if he started getting paid for the ministry that he was doing, that some people would say, oh, that's the reason that he does it, just for the money. Or that some people would begin to focus on how famous he was, how much money he could make speaking, and that their focus would be on Paul and not on the gospel. And so Paul, knowing these things, knowing his context, said that I will give that up if it will advance the gospel. But what I think is most remarkable about his response is not what he did, but the attitude with which he did it. He's not giving these things up grudgingly. He's not saying, man, well, you know, I can't even do this stuff. 
He's not even trying to shame the Corinthians into giving up meat. He's not saying, you know, look how much I gave up. I don't even have a wife. You can't give up meat? Come on. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's boasting about this. He's excited about his opportunity to give these things up. Because, you see, Paul recognized that simply doing his duty, doing the baseline, didn't earn him any special reward. You know, he says, it's my job, basically, to preach the gospel. If I just preach... I have no reward for that. It's, it's, it's a duty. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But if I preach of my own free will, then I have a reward. If I give up rights that I could have, things that are good, that were allowed to me, and I give them up for the sake of the gospel, then he is audacious enough to say, for that I expect a reward. This is what Jesus is talking about, isn't it, when he talks to the rich young ruler. He says, now go and sell all that you have, that you might have treasure in heaven. Now, I don't know what treasure in heaven is exactly, but I want some. Because I believe that the God who calls me to lay down my rights, to lay down things that are good that I could have, that that good God will also reward me one day the things that I do for the sake of his gospel. That when I throw my lot in with the gospel, that one day I will share in its victory over sin and death, and I will share in the kingdom that Christ sets up for eternity. This is why I can give up my rights, not just willingly, not just grudgingly, but excitedly and rejoicing. Paul's not, not earning salvation by any means, but earning rewards in heaven one day. Paul says we are running a race for a prize. Let us run as to win that prize. A runner doesn't just run hoping that one day I'll get to the end of my race and it'll be great, I think, whenever I get there. No, a runner disciplines his body. He gives up anything that might hinder him from getting to that, from winning the prize. He lays aside even good things that might hold him back from that. Paul's saying, run this way, give up any right, even good things that could hinder your work in the gospel. Fixing your eyes on the prize of one day in eternity, God's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Jim Elliott's echoing this thought when he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The fourth principle Paul is teaching is acting in love means taking sin seriously. These controversial issues that we've been kind of referencing and talking about tonight, they may not be sinful of themselves. It may not be wrong to do these things, but do we ever think about the sin that is surrounding these issues when we're deciding whether or not to do them? Paul is warning the Corinthians that, yes, these idols, they're nothing. They're, they're not real. They're just wooden or stone statues, whatever's in there. So the meat's nothing. Yes, you can eat the meat. But what's going on here is that people are communing with demons. But that meat that's okay for you to eat, that it was participating in communion with demons. So eat it if you want, but be aware of the sin that is going on there. For us, this might look like, yeah, you can go ahead, you can have a drink, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with drinking. But, have we ever seen a family that's been torn apart by an alcoholic? 
Listen to any music that you want, but do you know what lyrics are in there? What lifestyle is being promoted as you hear that? Do we take that sin seriously, or do we treat it like it just doesn't matter? Do we think that we can never be touched by that sin again? He references the fathers, the Israelites, who were not so different from us. They were God's chosen people with God's power shown to them, called out of Egypt, out of slavery, into God's promised land. But he says with them, God, with many of them, God was not pleased. Why? Because they were proud. They didn't take sin seriously. And we read time and again of how they stumbled, how they fell, and ultimately how they were destroyed. Do we think that just because we've been shown unmerited favor by Christ, that we can no longer be touched by this same sin? Do we take seriously the warning that says that we have an enemy who is prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? If you're here tonight and you... Place. Give me a second. Paul's warning here is, is that anyone who thinks that they stand, take heed lest you fall. Hear the gravity in that. Paul is so serious about this point that he says he immediately feels the need to assure the Corinthians of their assurance in Christ. Right after that warning, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Paul sees the power of sin as so great that it is only the grace and the sovereignty of God that keeps us from it. That left to our own, we would be quickly devoured, pulled back into that sin, and destroyed those here tonight that have not given their life to Christ, this is your condition. We who say we're following Christ, it's not because of anything we've done, it's not because of the lives that we're living, it's not because of things that we have given up. It is only because of God's mercy, because he took our sins seriously, because he gave up his rights, and he died on a cross for us. And unless you put your faith in that, sin will ultimately and eternally destroy you. But those of us here who say we follow Christ never forget what we have been bought out of. Let us never take sin lightly. Have we ever thought that people who maybe are more conservative than we are, maybe we think of don't understand the fullness of these issues as well as we do, maybe they are actually wiser than we are? That we say maybe we know more Bible verses and we know more of how they apply to this issue and what the Bible actually says about it. But our focus is on this issue and what we can and cannot do in it. Their focus is on the cross. They're saying, in effect, I don't know how to deal with this issue. I don't know exactly what God's word said on it. But I know the power of sin. I know what the cross has done for me. And I will not ever go back towards anything that might take me from that. Perhaps rather than teaching these people better doctrine or better how an issue should be treated, maybe we should first learn from them. 
should first learn to love the cross. To follow Paul when he says, flee from idolatry, flee from sin, flee from anything that is desiring you to take you away from the cross. The last point that I think Paul would make is that acting in love brings glory to God. You know, I think that sometimes we may have a vague idea of what that means. What does it mean to bring glory to God? Yes, as Christians, that's our purpose, but what does that actually look like? I think in this ending of this passage, Paul is giving us specific, concrete examples of what it means, he will ultimately say, to bring glory to God in everything. And I think we should be apparent that in these touchy issues, it's not what we do or do not do. If you remember back in verse 8, Paul, <coughs> Paul says um, that food will not commend us to God. We are no better off if we do not eat, and we are no worse off if we do. It's not about whether or not you eat. It's about why you do what you're doing. And verse 24 in chapter 10, Paul says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So glorifying God looks like being willing to sacrifice even good things in our lives for the good of those who are around us. Verse 25 and 26, Eat whatever is sold in the market with, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Glorifying God is understanding that everything is from Him that we don't need to fear these trivial issues and that we should not be bogged down or sidetracked by any legalism or any issue that is not furthering the gospel of Christ. In verse 27, it's going out with our neighbors, eating with them, and not adding anything to separate them from Christ, to recognizing that there is enough sin between them and the cross already. And that we don't need to add these trivial, often legalistic issues to that. But it is also in verse 28 through 30, taking sin seriously. It's recognizing that when someone says to you, shouldn't we not do that? Shouldn't Christians avoid this action? You know, aren't we not supposed to drink that or eat that? That that thing is an issue for them. That should be the only prompting that we need to recognize that there is a risk of sin in their life. And we should glorify God by refusing to turn one of his good gifts into sin for our brother refuse to work against the gospel of Christ by becoming a stumbling block for those that he is working to save. It's through all of these horizontal actions, through all the work that we do with people around us, through the daily actions that we live, that we are able to glorify God. Everything we do, Paul says, whether we eat or drink, wherever we go, whatever we do, whoever we're with, whatever we listen to, whatever we watch, should bring glory to God. I think if we keep these sorts of principles in mind, then the way to deal with controversial issues becomes much clearer. Because we're no longer just asking, what is the right thing to do? What does the Bible say about this? What should I be looking at? And which verse applies more directly? No, we're asking, how does this action show love for my brother? Have I considered what things might be a sin issue for them? And am I acting in accordance and in love with that? It's asking, how can I further the gospel in this action? How can I trade my temporary rights on this earth for eternal rewards in heaven, sharing in the gospel and its victory? 
It's asking, am I taking sin seriously in this issue? Do I recognize what's going on and how this sin has power in the world and how it might enslave those who are around me? I think when we ask ourselves these questions, the motivations of our heart become much clearer. We see why we're desiring to do an action rather than just whether or not we're allowed to do it. And the answer becomes much clearer. Perhaps not easier, but we were never promised it would be easy. Paul's final words in 11.1 are, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Our ultimate example in these situations is Christ, who gave up his rights, came on this earth, and died for our sins. If these issues seem complicated, or the action seems difficult, then all we must do is look to Christ. And in the light of what he's done, no sacrifice we can make is too great. But also, no sacrifice is without hope. No sacrifice is by our own power. It is through the power of the cross that we are able to do these things. And it is in the hope of sharing one day in the eternal reward with him that we can do them joyfully. Often I think of all the things that I must do in this Christian life, and sometimes it seems overwhelming. What helps me is to remember that all I must do is fix my eyes on Christ, follow after him, do everything I can to live in his hope and in light of what he has done for me. And that is my ultimate calling. That is the summary of all that we must do here. Let me pray. Father, I thank you again for the privilege of speaking your word, for the time I have spent in it and the, the grace that it has ministered into my own life, Father. Father, I pray that we, as we leave here tonight that our eyes would be focused on you, on what you have done for us, and on how we may further your gospel, Father, how we may build up your kingdom and share in that, that we would look to act in love when we face controversial issues, not just being satisfied with the doctrine, satisfied with the scriptures that we might read, Father, but acting to reflect the love that you showed to us, Father. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.